I'm Jen Germain with What's Good 206. This week, we're looking at young political game changers in Seattle who are working hard to affect change in our communities. I had the opportunity to talk with Austin Wright Pettibone. Austin's a senior at the University of Washington. He was recently appointed by Governor Inslee to serve as the student member for the Board of Regents, which is the governing body of the university. It's a pretty big deal. The university is governing body watches over all aspects of the university. So we're responsible for everything from looking at tuition levels to authorizing new capital projects or putting together the state's legislative agenda. That's a pretty big job for a college student. But this isn't Austin's first political rodeo. In 2013, he interned at the White House for the Office of Digital Strategy. One of the projects I was involved in was putting together uh, a guest list for my office for the White House Easter egg roll. For those of you wondering what in the world an Easter egg roll is, it's a traditional event held at the White House every Easter. People gather and roll Easter eggs across the lawn. For Austin, it was a life-changing experience. What we did was we uh, opened up a poll on our social media accounts and said, you know, tell us why you want to come to the White House and how you engage with us online. And I remember this woman submitted her responses and she said, you know, I want to come here because I have terminal bone cancer. I don't know if I'm going to be here next year, but I want to just give my grandchildren one last happy memory to remember me by. And I remember I got to meet her um, when she came. And the experience of being able to shake someone's hand and welcome them into the building, to me that changed my life because that's when I realized that if I didn't do any major policy work in my life, what I wanted to be able to do was go out there and try to make the world a better place to give people an opportunity to feel like they were accepted and heard and understood. And that's what I felt like I was able to do there. Austin's first encounter with President Obama wasn't at the White House. It was in high school. My dad always used to drive me into uh, school. And one morning, uh, I was writing for my high school paper at the time, and one morning, a story on NPR comes on saying that the president is going to be coming to Boeing to give a speech. And being, I think I was, what, 17, maybe 18 at the time, uh, I said to my dad, I want to go to that speech. And he said, well, good luck with that. I said, no, really, I want to go to that speech. So I get to school, I go online, I find the number for the White House press office, and I give them a call. And I said, you know, I'm a high school reporter. Um, I heard the president's <laughs> coming. Um, can, I, can I come to this speech? And I think they're a little shocked. <laughs> but, you know, at, lo and behold, I got credentialed. And I went to the speech. And I saw the president at Boeing Field. And... It was amazing just to sort of say like, oh, hey, like, <laughs> just pick up the phone and go call someone and, you know, see that you can be a part of that opportunity that was a lot bigger than, uh, than you were experiencing just as a, 
a high school student in a suburb. That's what got me hooked, is seeing what happens to your own sense of self when somebody else takes a chance on you, and then trying to give that experience to other folks. And he's been working on doing just that. In 2015, as the Director of Government Relations for UW Student Government, he successfully lobbied state legislators to lower the cost of college tuition. We put together a report uh, called Meet Us in the Middle, where we said that uh, college affordability could be achieved when a student would be able to work their way through school again. And we calculated it out. And it actually was over 40 hours a week to afford uh, the tuition at the university, as well as the associated fees if you were working at minimum wage. 40 hours of work a week to afford school. According to Austin, Washington State Community Colleges received a 5% reduction in tuition. UW and WSU received a 5% reduction in the first year and a 15% reduction in the second year. The rest of Washington's colleges received a 5% reduction in the first year, going up to as much as 20% in the second year. We've all been impacted by, um, by the various changes that are going on in our state. We've all felt that college isn't affordable or it's, it's really hard to be able to work your way through school. But it's when you go and you tell that to somebody, when you ask for that meeting with your state legislator, you're able to share your story about how I've tried to work my way through school but I've not been able to, and I really want to. I want to work for my education. Can you help me? Well, I think they said yes then. And I think they said yes because we had a chorus of voices coming together to really show that college could be affordable if we made the effort to make it so. Having experienced firsthand how positive collaboration and communication can affect change, Austin encourages his peers to do the same. We need to get involved now because the changes that we're going to see, the truly meaningful changes, are going to come 10 years down the line. But we need to start taking control of that steering wheel now, trying to change the course of this ship in order to get to the future that we want. So what would you say to those millennials out there who maybe feel a little bit let down by the current systems of government? Um, and at the same time, maybe feel like their vote just doesn't really make a difference. If you feel let down, that's good because it means you care. And if you care, then it means you're engaged. And if you're engaged, then you have an opportunity to make a difference. So rather than feeling let down and taking it as an opportunity to disengage, I would say that it's your challenge to feel let down and make that the opportunity to engage. When we take action now, we inspire downstream changes in the future. Next up, we move from the college campus to the campaign trail with Maddie Fuchs. Maddie has worked as an organizer for multiple environmental groups. She is also currently the campaign manager for Tina Podlodowski, the Secretary of State Democratic candidate. It's Sunday, and Maddie is putting out snacks at Podlodowski's house. She greets volunteers as they arrive to make campaign signs and shows them how to staple the signs together. The Seahawks' first game of the season plays in the background. Just like all of the sizes. 
And so Tina and I could just grab a box and go to the Ah, so you wanted us Maddie graduated from the University of Washington in 2012 with degrees in business and environmental studies. It was the combination of the two fields that ultimately launched her into politics. So in school, learning abstractly about how climate change is already happening, millions of people are across the globe are already being impacted, mostly in countries south of the equator. And that was very abstract to me, but understanding how home would be impacted, our fisheries will be sort of devastated by this, and that forest fires will continue to sort of build and grow. It was this sort of culminating realization that the world that I was living in and that I so loved would be different. I realized that politics and policies you know, were really the driving force and the institutional change that needed to happen to really make an impact on this issue that I cared so much about. With the carbon tax initiative on the ballot, the millennial vote could play a crucial role for Podlodowski's campaign and the climate change narrative. But there's just one problem. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 2014, the number of registered voters between the ages of 18 and 34 was less than half of the entire demographic. Why do you think that such a large percentage of millennials don't vote, they're not voting, um, and what do you think needs to change to make that start happening? It's um, a systematic uh, problem. You know, it, it happens sort of structurally, I think, in a variety of different places. I know that I didn't receive sort of education growing up about sort of civic participation other than the very general three branches of government, um, a little bit of constitutional background. But, you know, I, you know, it's embarrassing to think about how long I didn't know there was a state legislature. <laughs> um, and I think that that's a disservice to our generation. So I think part of it is, you know, ensuring that the kids that are going through high school right now are, are being better educated than I felt like I, my and my peers were, you know? Along with political education, Maddie says another piece of the puzzle is gender representation, which is actually happening. I also think that um, really having and seeing ourselves being represented in government, right? We had an incredible amount of uh, millennial women running for city council last year. And not all of them won, but, you know, having um, that visual of seeing people who looked like me run for office made me, like, very, very aware of how powerful that, we, like, we could be as uh, both voters and also, you know, as representatives eventually. Trying to navigate our political system and local government is overwhelming for most of us. I asked Maddie... What's the first step someone should take if they want to get involved in local politics? For me, it started by just showing up and being okay that I wasn't necessarily going to be comfortable or know what was happening. Um, you know, go to the city council meetings or read about the hearings online. You know, I was lucky enough to just basically start participating and going down to the legislature and sitting in on a a committee hearing, um, which, you know, for, I had no idea sort of what that was going to look like. 
and then eventually ended up testifying at a committee hearing, right, on the issues I care about. And for Maddie, change can be achieved one person at a time. It was voter registration day, National Voter Registration Day on Tuesday. And I went to Cafe Ladro because buying fancy coffees with the money I don't really have sometimes makes me really happy. <laughs> and um, I asked my barista if she was registered to vote, and she said no. And I had this conversation with her. I was like, oh, like, are you planning to vote in this year's election? You know, and she was like, yeah, I think so, but I haven't gotten around to it. It doesn't feel that important. And so we just, we, we just had, like, a five-minute conversation about, like, the issues she cares about. I asked, you know, like, oh, like, are you worried about the presidential race? And, like, are there any issues that you particularly care about? You know, it's like, yeah, actually, a woman's right to choose is really important to me. It's like, okay, well, you know, voting in this year's election is actually, like, pretty critical to this. And I think that's, that's another thing that we could all do as millennials is, if we're engaged already, making sure to sort of reach out and remind folks that there are things that are really important in this world. <laughs> and apathy is, you know, not going to serve us in the long term. Working as a campaign manager is a full-time job. Phone calls and emails alone take up a large percentage of Maddie's day. She also travels with the Podlodowski campaign throughout Washington State to meet with community leaders and organize volunteer groups. While you're obviously super passionate about what you're doing, I imagine it's probably not the most financially rewarding job. <laughs> so in reality, I think most of us come up against this struggle in life um, with the idea of being able to do what you love and what you care about versus doing what's going to pay the bills. Um, so how do you navigate those waters? Um, how are you able to do what you love and still survive financially? It's, it's a, a choice that I made coming out of school not to sort of pursue... Uh, a sales or a business, um, you know, pathway for myself. And I am making enough to pay the bills. Living in Seattle is becoming less and less um, of a feasible, you know, reality, I guess, <laughs> uh, because of raising rents and whatnot. But it's a lifestyle choice, I think. Uh, and I have been really blessed with the opportunity to be, you know, working in jobs that do, right? I, I am paying the rent. I'm able to pay my bills. I'm not, you know, saving up money to buy a house or <laughs> a new car when my car inevitably breaks down because I drive a 1999 Toyota Corolla. <laughs> or, um, you know, if I ever choose to, like, have a family, right? Those, I think those choices and making sort of these bigger adult steps We'll have to, have to force the decision a little bit more. Maddie feels hopeful about Podlodowski's chances of winning. But in politics, there are no guarantees. Either way, Maddie says she will continue fighting for the change she wants to see. November 8th will happen. I'm confident that we can win this. And it's, it's you know, the next month and a half is, you know, just head down, full on sprint. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, popping up on November 9th, I'll be able to reevaluate re sort of what's next, uh, but definitely committed to continuing to stay in the political, political sphere um, for, for a little bit longer at least, trying to, yeah, engage, engage as many people as possible. Continuing on the campaign trail, we now hear from a Republican millennial, Matt Donnellan.
Matt Donilon is the political director for Bill Bryan's campaign for governor. Matt got his start in politics as a freshman in college when he attended a meeting for the College Republican National Committee, or the CRNC. He was just 17 years old. And it was a lot of fun, and it was great, and it was challenging and fulfilling, and I loved it. And that was one event turned into two, turned into three, turned into doing stuff on campus, turned into working on the, a campaign. You know, I was volunteering and working on these campaigns, and I couldn't vote yet. To say that Matt is passionate about politics would be an understatement. While working with the CRNC, Matt helped completely re-strategize the organization's methods of reaching voters. I mean, we were absolutely winning the battle for young volunteers on campus, um, but we were losing the battle for young voters. You know, we would go to a campus, we'd grow a club to be one, two hundred people, you know, smaller schools, 50 or 100 people, things like that. And those were dedicated active volunteers who would do a lot of work, um, but we were taking them off campus. You know, we were, everybody was taking them off campus to be, you know, door to door on the phones, doing rallies, doing things that were contacting voters um, over the age of 30. And so we, we started to not have a presence on campus designed to win votes. So we threw out the program and we said, we're going to do things completely differently. And our focus was keeping people on campus, building relationships, and trying to win votes on campus. From 2013 to 2014, Matt served as the executive director of the CRNC while continuing to work on campaigns. He started using digital media as a way to reach young voters. Uh, the Virginia governor's race in 2013, uh, Terry McAuliffe versus Ken Cuccinelli, we, um, it was the very first thing that we did. We put together an ad campaign called Terry Fish based on the MTV show Catfish. You know, we focused on three main ways to reach millennial voters. Um, it's message, medium, and theme. And um, all three of those things are distinct and important. So message, you know, what is the content of what we're saying, lower taxes, you know, more efficient government, things like that. And then medium was where we really need to make some changes, which was, you know, you can't reach an 18 to 29-year-old voter, 18 to 34-year-old voter even really, um, on television. You really can't reach them on the mail, uh, in the mail. You can't reach them on the phone easily. So how do you reach these voters? And we turned to digital and it was enormously successful. Um, and then theme, the last part about that was a relatability. We tend to walk in and say, these are the facts. These are all of them. You know, let's talk about it for a half hour. And at the end of that, you'll obviously vote for us. And if you spend that much time doing it, you tend to do that. But if you have 30 seconds to watch something, um, we need to connect with you. Which is easier said than done. Throughout his experience, Matt has learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work when it comes to reaching voters. Like, for example, the political signs people post in their front yard. Yard signs are just the worst thing ever. You know, they, they do nothing. I mean, they make people happy, um, but they don't actually translate into votes that are won. But you can see them and you can feel them and they're tangible. And I always joke around when people tell me, um, about putting signs up on some corner because the corner's full of signs. I'll be like, name three of the candidates whose signs were on the corner. And they'll kind of look at me and they maybe can think of one. In his role as political director for Bill Bryant, Matt's primary job is to win votes, which is not without difficulty in a city that hasn't elected a Republican governor since 1981. The challenge here is, you know, we as Republicans, as conservatives, 
you know, we are selling vegetables and exercise and the other side is selling, you know, um, cake and diet pills. <laughs> and like deep down, deep down, you know that vegetables and exercise are what you need to do. Um, but, you know, you can ask any of my friends that does not reflect my personal diet, you know, um, and cake and diet pills are much better. And I say that as a joke, but it's sort of this comparison of, of deep down the policies that we're that we're trying to communicate, um, they, they fundamentally work better, but it's, it's a lot harder to answer for them in a 30 second soundbite. And it's a lot easier to answer for them in a long, long conversation. And long conversations are not easily achieved in a time crunched soundbite driven society. Most voters are focused on their families and their jobs and their commute and all the issues that they're facing. You know, they don't, want somebody to knock on their door and say, sir, do you have, you know, the next, you know, four hours to talk about every issue? Ma'am, can you sit down with me and talk about education for, you know, the next day or come to this meeting? So it is, it's a challenge communicating essentially the correct ideas in such a brief amount of time. And, you know, the other side is just a master at the sound bites and the quips on this, and it just works for them. The other side, meaning the Democrats. It's always easier to be a... Republican in a place where there's already a Republican. Once you can win, you'll continue to win. But we have to sell ideas that really work well in 30 minutes and not 30 seconds. For Matt, diving deep into an issue as opposed to scratching the surface of multiple issues is what's most important. Kind of our current state for the American political system, we try to solve incredibly complex problems with very simple answers. If we just do X, then Y. You know, if we just elect this person or enact this policy, then all will be fixed. Matt also feels that we need to be looking ahead and thinking long term about the policies and initiatives we are putting forth. He gives the example of the light rail transportation initiative, ST3, which Washington will vote on this November. You know, I have a huge problem with ST3 because, you know, we're talking billions of dollars invested in hard infrastructure rail when, you know, every major company that we know, many based here in Seattle, are teaming up to f build self-driving cars, right? I mean, you, you name a major technology or just major company in this country, and they are probably teaming up with it a group of people to develop a self-driving car, you know, um, Tesla released their next model car that announced their next model car a few years ago or a few months ago. And, um, my girlfriend and I put a deposit down. We put a deposit down on an all electric, um, car that didn't exist yet. And a quarter million people joined us in the first 24 hours. And so, when I look at a project like ST3 that's going to spend billions of dollars over decades on hard rail infrastructure and I just say I, I can't I can't think that that's the best idea that's the best use of taxpayer money you know 40 years from now or something ridiculous when the project is done and it's gone 100% over budget the way it usually does um are we going to look back and say that, you know, these rail tracks, the land, the space, the that was the best thing to do? Matt's theory is that car sharing will also overtake mass transit. Recent statistics support this idea. 
According to the Seattle Department of Transportation, 14% of car sharing members have given up owning a vehicle. You and I talked about this, I think, before we got started, that, you know, I don't have a, a car here. I take Uber pool everywhere. And, you know, I, I take an Uber carpool uh, for $4 basically everywhere I go. You know, what happens in five years when that's a dollar and it's a self-driving car? You know, no one's going to take rail, but we're still going to be 30 years away from being done. It's evident that Matt's brain is wired for problem solving and critical thinking which makes politics the perfect fit for him. You know, I had a PC repair business in high school. Um, I think I got broadband internet when I was like four or two or something like that. And, um, you know, always had extra computers in the house. And so I would fix them for people and give them back and then give me $20 and I turned that into a business. And so I was always a technology person. I was always a, a, an engineering person and a math person. And then kind of seeing this as, you know, kind of being pushed in the political world and seeing, you know, this, is, this isn't just art, it isn't just science, it's a combination of both, and it is absolutely the most challenging and fulfilling thing I'd kind of done instantly up to that point, and it continues to be. Thank you so much for being here and for talking with me. It was really great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. This podcast was produced by me, Jen Germain. For more stories from What's Good 206, visit our page at kcts9.org.